Podcast Episode 3, Friendship. Welcome to the Literate Caveman. Hello, and thank you for listening to my podcast. The purpose of this podcast is mostly to review books and literature with an emphasis on mindset. Occasionally, I plan to do episodes that will feature a compilation of related subjects. The majority of the books I will review will be older, less-known books that I feel offer wisdom and value to the reader. I do have a couple of books in mind that are recently published, but the bulk of this podcast will be older material. In general, these podcasts will be longer-form talks of my YouTube and Rumble videos. Now, to introduce myself for those who don't know, my name is Chad Blake. I have worked as a strength and conditioning coach for a little over 20 years. I taught self-defense on and off for, let's say, 25 years. And once upon a time, I did some bodyguard work. These days, I keep myself busy with my online personal training business, the novels that I write, and my voiceover career, which is my current focus. Today, we are going to review Chapter 3 in C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves, which is the chapter on friendship. This is probably my favorite chapter in the book. I remember when I first read it years ago, it really caught my attention. Lewis opens the chapter by explaining that when an author is discussing eros or affection they find a ready audience, he felt that in his lifetime, keep in mind he passed away in 1963, the love of friendship was not held in very high esteem. He goes on to provide several examples of literature such as Romeo and Juliet and Antony and Cleopatra that focus on Eros, but you have to go back quite a bit further to find literature that celebrates friendship. The ancients, he asserts, seemed to believe friendship was the happiest and most fully human of all loves. The modern world, by comparison, ignores it. Once he lays down this premise, he goes on to discuss how he felt this came about. He says that the first and most obvious answer is few people value friendship because few people experience it. Friendship does not have the same wide appeal as Eros, and he asserts that friendship, from a biological standpoint, is probably the least necessary of the loves. Friendship, he says, is not as exciting as Eros, and when we do experience it, we experience it on a small scale. Meaning, most of the time, it is essentially between individuals. It might be worth pointing out there is a significant distinction between friendship and acquaintances. This should make a little more sense as we go through the chapter, but he is talking about real human connection, not just being fond of someone or being glad you run into someone at the store or at a pub. And obviously, this was written well before social media, where people friend one another, quote-unquote, they barely know to increase their networks. Returning to the text, Lewis affirms that without Eros, none of us would have been begotten, and without affection, none of us would have been raised. But we can live and breed without friendship. The human experience, again from a biological outlook, can be argued to have no need of friendship as a love. Further, the community may dislike and distrust it. Authority figures, he says, can feel uneasy when close and strong friendships develop in small clusters of their subjects. Going back to ancient and medieval literature, Lewis explains that he believes one of the reasons friendship was held in high regard was because culturally there was a movement against nature and emotion in the body. They were seen, he says, as dangerous to our souls and despised as degradations of our human status. Because friendship does not have the same primal, emotional pull on a person, because it is, in general, a calmer, more rational love, he believes it was seen as a more spiritual form of love. As I have said in previous episodes, 
The cultural pendulum swings from one extreme to another. And all the while, people shoving the pendulum in the direction they prefer believe they are making progress, when in reality, they are just reacting against the pendulum push of the previous movement. If you consider this analogy, be cautious about picturing it as a light-switch kind of action. It is not. What I mean by that is the cultural swing of the pendulum is gradual, and there is an overlap between the apex of each swing and the reactionary push. It only seems sudden when you are not paying attention. So with literature, which in its own way was a precursor to social media, authors and commentators of the Romantic era reacted against the previous era, from around 1800 to 1850. Lewis says that this period was noteworthy for the exaltation of sentiment, which culminated in the exaltation of instinct. Popular themes at the time were, quote-unquote, the dark gods of the blood, on one end, and tearful smiles and baby talk on the other. He says friendship, as a love, was rejected by the sentimentalists because it lacked those tearful smiles, and it was rejected by the primitivists because it did not have enough blood and guts about it. From there, Lewis points out that what further contributed to the decline of friendship as an esteemed love was the development of those who hold the opinion that human life is no more than a complication of animal life. Therefore, he says, all forms of behavior which cannot produce certificates of an animal origin and of survival value are suspect. Personally, I would argue that friendship offers significant survival value, both from a mental health outlook and from a more traditional survival outlook. I'll wrap up our talk with my thoughts on that. For now, we will continue our review of the chapter. Lewis finishes this section by saying that during the Romantic period, Friendship seemed like an etoliated substitute for the more organic loves. Now, I know what you were thinking. You were wondering what in the world etoliated means. That brings us to our word of the day. Etoliated, according to Merriam-Webster, is to bleach and alter the natural developments, as of in a plant by excluding sunlight. It can also mean to make pale, or to deprive of natural vigor to make feeble. At this point in the text, Lewis goes into some detail debunking the view that all same-sex friendships are really homosexual. He explains that during his day, remember he passed away in 1963, what he calls wiseacres were trying to claim that every firm and serious friendship was really homosexual. He says that the argument ran that since no positive evidence of homosexuality could be found, it was proof that homosexuality existed. The lack of evidence, he says, was treated as evidence. He says this is equivalent to saying... If there were an invisible cat in a chair, the chair would look empty. But the chair does look empty, therefore there is an invisible cat in it. Another quote from the text, A belief in invisible cats cannot perhaps be logically disproved, but it tells us a good deal about those who hold it. Those who cannot conceive friendship as a substantive love, but only as a disguise or elaboration of eros, betray the fact that they have never had a friend. End of quote. A couple of interesting distinctions he makes between friends and lovers. He says that lovers are always talking to one another about their love, but friends hardly ever talk about their friendship. We will come to this in more detail soon, but he does spend some time discussing how friends spend most of their time talking about the subject of their friendship. He also mentions that lovers are more inclined to sit facing each other. Friends sit side by side, absorbed in some common interest. To this point, he makes an interesting distinction between friendship and companionship. The Matrix, he says, 
of friendship is often companionship, or what he calls clubbableness. By clubbableness, he means those relationships which spring up in common areas where people intermingle and socialize, where people talk shop. This companionship, he says, often gets mistaken for friendship, and many people who speak of their friends mean only their companions. In saying this, he is specific that he is not disparaging companionship, he is just making a distinction. Companionship leads to friendship the same way that friendship, as Lewis is describing it, is born. When two or more people discover they have in common some insight or interest which the others do not share and which, till that moment, each believed to be his or her own unique treasure or perhaps burden, friendship is the result. A distinction between friendship and eros is, in friendship, the question, do you love me, means, do you see the same truth? An interesting point is that as far as the common interest is concerned, what is important is that two or more people see the same question, not that they agree on the answer to the question, whereas companionship is about people doing things together. Friendship occurs when some less widely shared and less easily defined interest is discovered. From here, he explains his views on why the kinds of people who simply want friends can never make any. I want to provide a little context here before I go into more detail on C.S. Lewis's views on this point. He lived in a very different time, with very different social interactions. In his time, there was no such thing as a virtual life, meaning an online life. When people wanted social interactions, they got out of the house or hosted people at home. There was no such thing as sitting all day interacting with people online. We have a bizarre dichotomy in society today where in one sense people feel more connected than ever before, but loneliness is epidemic. This is another one of those subjects where I could get pretty deep in the weeds, but today I think I will just say this. Human connection is very important to mental health. I do not believe that we can be satisfied with exclusively online interactions. I think online interactions can be healthy, although I am not sure that is the norm. But regardless of how healthy online interactions are, I do not believe they can replace interacting with people in person. And I'm not sure that a work environment is enough to fill this need. That may depend on the nature of the work. I think we can find examples of people who get a lot of personal satisfaction from work and meaningful interactions, but I don't think that is the norm. Finishing this thought, I want to be precise that in this section I am not saying that lonely people cannot form meaningful friendships. I think someone who is feeling a deep-seated loneliness could get a little triggered by this section of the text, and that is not the intent. The intent, at least my intent in discussing this, is if you feel a deep-seated loneliness and you are craving friendship, get out of the house. But getting out of the house is not enough. You need to identify a subject you are interested in and go participate in that subject. It does not matter what it is. Gardening, martial arts, dog sports, shooting sports, homesteading, crochet. You know what your interests are. There are only two requirements in one condition. The requirements are, number one, it has to be a subject you are interested in, and number two, interacting with other people who are interested in that subject is a requirement. Now, let's say the subject is something like diving. Obviously, you are not having conversations underwater, or if you have the tech to have conversations, they are going to be limited. So that might not be a good choice. However, if there are interactions before and or after the diving, whether it is planning the dive or discussing the dive afterwards or both, then it might be an excellent choice. 
So those are the two requirements. You have to be interested in the subject. That means you're not participating in the subject because you want to make friends. You are participating because the subject interests you. And it is essential that there is some meaningful interactions or discussions surrounding the subject. And that leads us to the condition. If you pursue a subject with the sole intent of making friends, there is a chance you will drive people away. 80% of communication is body language. There is nothing attractive about desperation except to a predator. So, by all means, get involved in a subject with the desire to meet some people, but it is essential that you are interested in the subject and be calm about it. Do not be needy or clingy. Take your time. Friendship must be about something. This leads us to a quote from the book that is very pertinent. C.S. Lewis says, Those who have nothing can share nothing. Those who are going nowhere will have no fellow travelers. End quote. Later in the text, he says something that supports this opinion. He says that, quote, Friendship is utterly free from affections need to be needed. End quote. A little later in the text, he explains how friendship is most often between members of the same sex but he attributes this to the very different lives of the average men and women during his lifetime. In Lewis's time, women were not as prevalent in the workforce as they are today, and this is something that has changed a lot. He does caution, and this is still relevant, that when men and women become friends, friendship can be mistaken for eros with painful and embarrassing results. Again, friendship and eros can exist together, but when friendships are formed with the opposite sex too many times, one party or the other is hoping for something in addition to friendship. Obviously, sometimes friendship can lead to eros. He cautions against getting the two confused. Now we have a discussion on authority, which he begins by explaining that there are cases where the suspicion of friendship by those in authority is not always without good reason. He explains the reason for this is because friendship can be about any subject, not just benign or healthy ones. One of the effects of friendship is when one is with one's circle of true friends, those with shared values, whether they are healthy and innocent, or malicious and perverted, as those relationships deepen, the opinions of the friends will more and more outweigh the opinions of those outside of the friendship. A quote from the text, It is therefore easy to see why authority frowns on friendship. Every real friendship is a sort of secession, even a rebellion. It may be a rebellion of serious thinkers against accepted claptrap, or of faddists against accepted good sense, of real artists against popular ugliness, or of charlatans against civilized taste, of good men against the badness of society, or of bad men against its goodness. Whichever it is, it will be unwelcome to the top people. End quote. He goes on to say, Men who have real friends are harder for good authorities to correct or for bad authorities to corrupt. Hence, if our masters, by force or by propaganda about togetherness, or by unobtrusively making privacy and unplanned leisure impossible, ever succeed in producing a world where all are companions and none are friends, they will have removed certain dangers and will also have taken from us what is almost our strongest safeguard against complete servitude. End quote. A final point he makes about how the suspicion of friendship by those in power is not always without merit. He says, friendship makes good men better and bad men worse. The danger, he says, is when the natural 
partial indifference or deafness to outside opinion may lead to a wholesale indifference or deafness. He describes a healthier outlook as Olympian, which he says is tranquil and tolerant of outsiders, or it can be titanic, which he says is militant and embittered. While he describes friendship as being possible of being a very healthy love, he strongly cautions against letting it become what he calls a self-elected aristocracy basking in the moonshine of our collective self-approval. A little earlier in the text, C.S. Lewis gives an interesting example of how small groups of friends bring out interesting qualities in each other. He says, if we have three friends that we will call A, B, and C, and A passes away, then B loses not only A, but A's part in C. And C loses not only A, but A's part in B. I will quote from the text for his next example. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Roland's reaction to a specifically Caroline joke. Far from having more of Roland, having him quote-unquote to myself, now that Charles is away, I have less of Roland. Hence, true friendship is the least jealous of loves. True friends delight to be joined by a third, and three by a fourth. If only the newcomer is qualified to be a real friend, end quote. I'm going to finish today's episode by sharing some thoughts on friendship as a survival quality. C.S. Lewis expresses that he did not believe friendship has survival value, and he makes an interesting comment that while he believes friendship has no survival value, instead it brings value to survival. In the same way, art, music, and poetry do not have survival value, but make life more enjoyable. My own views on this are a little different, so please forgive me for wrapping this up by expressing some thoughts. Survival qualities is a category I have written about and talked about for close to 15 years. I could go pretty far into the weeds on this subject as well as others, but in the interest of brevity, I will keep my closing thoughts to how I see friendship as having survival value. First, we will address mental health. Mental health is a growing problem in the world, and we see this in rising crime rates, record high rates of depression, suicide, and divorce. How does friendship relate to mental health? Quite simply, human connection is healthy. Being isolated is not healthy. As we discussed today, and we will continue to explore this when we review the chapter on Eros next week, friendship is a very specific and unique type of connection. Obviously, friendship and Eros can overlap, but they do not have to, and you can certainly have friendship without Eros, and Eros without friendship. Now, I am not suggesting that someone who commits a heinous crime just needed a buddy. And we even have examples of crimes committed by groups of friends. Friendship, like any other love, can be toxic and unhealthy. If what brings two or three people together is a hatred for others or a real or perceived grievance, feeding that hate is not likely to have a positive outcome. I am saying that some of these people might have gone a different route if earlier in life they had established healthy connections with other people. That is a topic we can explore another time if there is interest, but for now the point is simply that positive human connection leads to better mental health and overall life satisfaction. Secondly, I want to address the practical survival value of friendship. Again, we could go pretty deep in the weeds here, but I will try to keep it simple. I will start with an example from nature since we are talking about survival qualities. 
And I guess I should qualify. I'm not a zoologist. I'm not claiming to be an animal expert. I'm not saying what I'm about to say follows 100% of the time. But I have read about examples where this is true. So I could provide more examples, but I'm trying to keep this fairly concise. So in nature, when young male lions get close to maturity, they get pushed out of their pride. This happens on average at about two years of age. And it takes them about two years before they will come across a pride that they can take over, which they do by chasing off the the dominant male or males that are in charge of the pride they take over. Quite often, a pair of male lions, typically littermates, will survive together and eventually take over another pride together. If the survival chances were better alone, obviously they would not pair up, but they do pair up very consistently, again, from what I've read and a couple documentaries that I've seen. Now, on a human level, if something bad happens, and that can be a wide range of things, having real friends you can rely on can be the difference between life and death. On a less extreme level, it can be the difference between having reliable support and figuring something out on your own. Again, a wide range of scenarios come to mind. But in a worst-case scenario, In a society-breaking-down type scenario, having access to people who have vested interest in your well-being has much greater survival value than relying on public service. Now, that does not have to mean a zombie apocalypse. Society can break down on a local level due to natural or man-made disasters. We can hope that order will be restored, but your chances of survival are better if you are not completely on your own. I know a lot of people expect police or firefighters to come to the rescue, and they might. But if we are talking about a worst-case scenario situation, those guys are going to be busy. And even in normal times, I myself have had two distinct events where I called 911 in a major metropolitan area. In the first case, people were not able to respond for 30 minutes. Now, in that case, I was in real and present danger, but I was not injured. If I had been injured and had not been able to deal with it, I could easily have died. The more recent time I was not in any danger, I called 911 to report a bad traffic accident that I had witnessed. I hung up after I was on hold for 30 minutes. I never spoke to anyone and they did not call me back. Now, I am not knocking the police or other first responders. I have a lot of friends in law enforcement and I have a lot of respect for that profession. What I am saying is I personally believe friendship has survival value. There are times when having someone that has your back or you having someone else's back can, again, be the difference between life and death. Wrapping up today's talk, I want to be clear that I did not cover every topic C.S. Lewis discusses in this chapter. It's a pretty dense chapter, and my intent behind these podcasts is not to read the book for you. It is to encourage you to seek knowledge for yourself. I have never been what I call a gatekeeper kind of instructor, and I will not start now. So when I review books, I discuss the things that stick out to me, and the things that I either feel drawn to or qualified to discuss. I tend to stay away from subjects that either don't get my attention, or that I feel are out of my depth. If you are enjoying these episodes, I encourage you to get a copy of the book, The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis, for yourself, or download the audiobook. This concludes today's discussion on The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis. Thank you for listening, and go read a book.